Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Ideramus Bulletin. In this episode, we speak with Michael Bursch, who recently wrote an article for Ideramus titled Eucharistic Faith Made Manifest, The Case for Altar Canopies. Michael is a sacred architect in Washington, D.C., working with Harrison Design's Sacred Architecture Studio. So without further ado, another Ideramus interview. Hi, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, I you know, just read this article that, that you wrote for Adorama's Bulletin, and I just think it's fantastic. I think it's it's measured. It's obviously, you know, talks about things that not your everyday Catholic conversation uh, is, is uh, discussing, but uh, really important, you know, liturgy, beauty, Eucharist. And today we're talking about uh, canopies, over the altar and the altar of course is has pride of place in the in the sacred liturgy so what i always like to to start with when i'm when i'm talking to an author is what what was the inspiration behind this piece sure well first of all thank you for for having me on um it's truly a pleasure to be here uh so the inspiration for this piece is that the of course, as we all know, the altar you know, is the, the center of the church and the center of the liturgy and the Eucharist that is celebrated upon it. Um, and then as such, you know, the altar canopy really highlights and brings prominent to that. And so kind of the path to getting here is twofold. The, the first, the larger part is that I am a church architect. Um, and so we specialize in the design of traditional Catholic churches. So working with different parts of architecture, really, whether that's, you know, railroad doses and altar canopies, or whether, you know, that's roofs and foundations. Um, that's my, my bread and butter every day, day in and day out, which is fantastic. Um, and the second thing was with the Eucharistic revival coming up, you know, I think just trying to really refocus in on how can, you know, everything relate back to the Eucharist. And in kind of my purview, how can, you know, architecture relate back to the Eucharist? for this kind of refocusing in on the center of the Catholic life. So, you know, we hear this, you know, trope all the time uh, about, well, the Last Supper was just Jesus in, you know, the upper room is very simple and it was, you know, bread and wine. And and suddenly now we have these, you know, huge uh, churches with these big altars that are, you know, sometimes, you know, gilded in, in gold. So take take me through that process in a Eucharistic way. Why, why are we doing that? Sure. Well, you know, we could, we could have a whole a whole podcast just about that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so well, that's really with the altar and the architecture is all kind of subservient to the liturgy. And so I think really this is a question about how liturgy has changed over time, you know, and the formalization of rites. And so making sure that all, all masses said everywhere are in the same right. They're in communion with all their bishops, priests, and you know, ultimately the Pope, that they're really, you know, there's one mass that is being celebrated. And so because of that, there's a standardization of the liturgy. And so with a standardization of architecture. Now, as far as things like gilding um, and scale and size, that definitely has changed a lot because, you know, we're not 12 people gathering around a table. I mean, we have celebrations in the mass that have hundreds, have thousands of people. And because of that, you know, we're trying to emphasize with architecture, these parts of the mass, you know, and saying, okay, what is the most important? Because when you're sitting, you know, 30 pews back and, you know, your kids are, are talking and they're, you know, bumbling around in the pew, you know, 
what what is drawing your and what is drawing their attention to the mass? And of course, you know, that is the liturgy. That's the number one thing. But how can it be architecture be helping in the liturgy? You know, whether that's a really, you know, the ambo, which is oftentimes up on a few steps and it's raised up. So then the word of God can be proclaimed from a place of prominence. You know, you're not reading sitting on the floor. You're you're reading it, you're standing up at this ambo that's elevated because the word, you know, is elevating. And same with the altar, that the altar canopy is drawing this visual prominence to the altar, saying this is the Holy of Holies. Like this is the most important part of the church building and it's the most important part of the liturgy. So, yeah, to, I, I'm very curious about this, the uh, symbolism there. So uh, obviously in the article you talked about the two different types of canopies, but what what is the symbolism there? Is it, is it just to is it just to signify, hey something this is more important than other parts of the church or is there uh, some scriptural reference what 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 all goes into all of that sure yes yeah there are there are several different things that go into you know the symbolism behind an altar canopy and first is kind of that you know the practical purpose of yes like it highlights visually this is the most important part of the church you know it draws your eye it draws your heart it draws your mind this this is the center of it all um you know in a scriptural way that where it really comes from is from the Old Testament and from the Jewish tabernacle and the Jewish temple. And that there is this kind of layering of architecture until you get to the Holy of Holies. You know, you have, oh, taking the, the Jewish tabernacle, you have kind of the, the group of people, you have the encampment of all of the people in the 12 tribes. And so that's almost, you know, that's like the one way you can look at it is like, that's the nave of the church. You know, that's where the people gather. Or you can kind of look at it also in a way of you have kind of the tabernacle enclosure in itself, and that's where people would go to worship. Um, so that can also be understood as a name. I have heard different ways of kind of putting up you know, this analogy. But then you move into the tabernacle tent itself, which has the holy place and the holy of holies. And of course, the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so, you know, kind of that parallel is, you know, the sanctuary is the tabernacle tent. And then the Holy of Holies within that, you know, that's the altar, often up on a predella. That's like the one step that you find around an altar that raises it up and separates it you know, just a little bit architecturally from the rest of the sanctuary. And then the altar canopy above it, you know, that really emphasizes, okay, this is the Holy of Holies. This is the axis moon, you know, that the center of the world, that this is the heart of everything. And there's other, other different you know, references that we can look to um, towards royal canopies, which were used for kings throughout all sorts of periods. You can still find them now in, in France and in England. There are these royal throne canopies. They say, okay, this monarch, you know, they have great power. They have great royalty. They have great majesty. And it's the same thing. It's, it's the throne canopy for Christ, you know, that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, you know, and so this is showing that his divine kingship. And then also there's those wedding uh, analogy too, and that this is you know the wedding feast of the Lamb, and that the altar is you know the marriage bed of Christ and His bride, the Church, and we're looking at both Catholic and Jewish tradition, you know, particularly you know, in the old form in the old rites of the Mass, that there was a, a canopy that was put over a couple that were being married in the Jewish tradition, a chupa, um, and the volatio nuptialis for the the Latin rite. So there, there are these multiple layers of meaning that the altar canopy you know, draws from and different traditions to create what it is today. So I was right. It was uh, there's a lot going on there, and we probably even just scratched the surface there. Um, 
you know, you mentioned the Eucharistic revival, and obviously they're they're doing these pilgrimages from the the four corners of the states, and they're going to be Eucharistic processions um, that will then kind of come together in Indianapolis for the revival itself. You know, I've seen a lot of Eucharistic processions, both at Corpus Christi, but then, you know, different, um, you know, for different devotions. There's often a canopy used for that as well. Can you talk about that that association in connection? Exactly. You know, that, that's the, the exact same tradition. You're showing that one is kind of just the visual focus that this, you know, is the center. It's not not the people walking around behind with the candles. You know, it, it's the priest carrying the monstrance and shows like this is the most important part. And, and same with the other the other things we talked about, like especially with the the kingship, in that you would have royal leaders or with canopies where people would you know have a canopy over a king or a monarch as they're walking throughout the streets of a city going from place to place. And so in that same way, you know, we're showing Christ is the king of kings, and Christ is here in the Eucharist when we place a canopy, whether that's permanent in a church or whether that's one that's movable in a procession, it's the exact same symbolism and meaning. So, uh, you know, going back to the Eucharist, you know, in, in our in our faith, there's kind of two principal places for the Eucharist. There's the altar of sacrifice during the mass, right, the altar, but then there's uh, where the Eucharist the blessed sacrament is reposed in the tabernacle. So as an architect, you know, you're dealing with all of these things. How do you balance those two important things. So, you know, during the mass, obviously altar has pride of place, but when there's no liturgy happening, you know, the, the, the eye line, our hearts go to, to the altar of reservation, the tabernacle. So as an architect, how do you balance that, um, you know, and making sure that people know what's going on in regard to, you know, canopies and baldacchinos and all of that. Exactly. You know, that, that it's a very tough question and a question that comes up a lot, you know, the province of the altar, the province of the, reserved tabernacle. And that's really why I think that altar canopies are such a great response to that question. Now, of course, altar canopies have been used for centuries in the church. You know, there's a great continuity of its use throughout different periods of the liturgy and through different historical styles. I think even you know, today, especially in our post-conciliar world and with our, the liturgy that we have now, that the altar canopy is a fantastic solution for that. Because I've seen you know, different churches that have an arrangement where they have the altar canopy and they have both the altar and the tabernacle beneath the canopy. And one that comes to mind is the Cathedral of St. Joseph in Brooklyn. Um, in, in New York City, that it has both a freestanding altar kind of towards the front of the canopy, and then it has a tabernacle towards the back. And so it's not saying, okay, you know, one is more important than the other, one gets a canopy, one doesn't, that both are under this kind of area that's shown as, okay, this is the Holy of Holies, this is the most important part. And that canopy really, you know, brings some visual unity to these two items that can, yeah, you, exactly, you're right, can be competing architecturally you know, and visually within a space. And then, you know, obviously a lot of what this article about is, you know, signifying the importance of the altar. But, you know, during liturgy, as you mentioned, uh, there are two other uh, pieces of, you know, furnishings that are incredibly important. You mentioned the ambo already, but then also the celebrant's chair. So how does a canopy over an altar, you know, set, set, the other two pieces in the liturgy uh, as, as a part. So you have this pride of place, but then that also kind of um, makes sure that everything is in the right balance. Yes. Well, so if you look at you know many historic churches, you'll find that the altar is not the only thing where there is a canopy over it. 
Um, you often find ambos that have canopies over them, often in the form of a sounding board. And so those had the dual purpose of you know, first, you know, again, like the ultra canopy, drawing attention and prominence saying this is important. The second is a more practical point where before microphones and artificial amplification, they would act as a sounding board. And so then the preacher's voice would bounce off of the board above. It would be a hard surface, you know, probably not cloth, but something hard and actually oftentimes slightly angled. And so the voice would be used and they would be projected outwards from this canopy. So you often find it there. And same, no, not really often with a, a priest chair with the sedalia, but with a, a bishop seat with the cathedral. Cathedrals often also have canopies. And that, you know, again, is drawing that parallel of, of Christ's divine kingship and saying, you know, that this is a person that has power and authority and which the bishop exactly does because of their role you know, in a special way in the person of Christ. And so there, there can actually be this conversation of canopies, which are all showing, okay, this is an important moment. This is an important moment. Um, but then looking at the scale and the ornamentation, you know, it, it's evident that, okay, this is the most important part. You look in these churches, the altar canopy is, is by far the largest. You know, if you think of uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in Minnesota, that the cathedral, the see the bishop there does have a canopy over it, I mean, but it is in no way competing with the canopy that is over the altar, which is you know, of a much larger scale, much finer materials and much greater ornamentation. But while still saying like the bishop seat over here is very important and it does have a canopy and it does have materiality of a high quality and it does have beauty as well, which is not diminishing to kind of any of those three items. I love how evocative this is of the Munera Christi, you know, the, the priest, prophet, and king, the priest at the altar, the prophet at the embo, and the king and the celebrant's chair. And I think, uh, you know, you know, marking those as, as significant uh, things with, with canopies and, and other architectural um, designs, I think is incredibly important. And so this, my last question is, you know, you talk about beauty and, Beauty is a, a lot of people uh, in the church are talking about how beauty can really bring people back to the church. So how does a beautiful church and a beautiful altar and, and canopy, how is that going to bring people to a higher understanding of, of the Eucharist during this revival? Yes, you know, that's a fantastic question. Um, you know, I'm sure many people have heard this quote from Benedict the Sixteenth, um, but he once said that the two greatest evangelists for the church are the saints and her art and her beauty. Those are the two the two greatest things. That it's, it's the witness, and really that's the saints. It's also about beauty, right? It's, it's the beauty of the witness of their lives. And then the art of the church, you know, the, the visual material beauty that points and shows that the church is really founded upon an immaterial, transcendent beauty. And so architecture and beauty, I think, are, are a really key part because it, it draws people in. That especially those that don't have you know a good relationship with the church or those that know much about the faith at all, but they see something that's beautiful. And as humans, you know, we are intrinsically we are intrinsically drawn towards beauty. And I think that you know, kind of there's the three you know, transcendentals of goodness, beauty, and truth. And in our world, you know, the goodness and truth you know, are, are just kind of slowly fading away, that people no longer are trying to to seek truth, that it's you know the is really having a hard time that people are struggling to understand like what is truth but many people are even giving up the struggle to seek out truth at all and you know in our secular culture that that's continuing on and so i think 
and the ability to have beauty is that that's something that people are all still really drawn towards. You know, whatever your background is, you know, whatever faith you practice or don't practice, that everyone wants something and wants to experience beauty. And so, you know, whether you know the catechism you know, front to back or whether you've never heard the word catechism in your life, that a beautiful church still speaks to the human heart, you know, in, in the same way. And sure, there are different symbolism and pieces that will be slowly be unfolded as you learn more about the faith. But at face value, you know, everyone can have an encounter with beauty. I think that's why it's so powerful. Well, Michael, this has been fantastic. I would encourage everybody to to go and read that that article in Autoramus. You did a wonderful job really weaving the thread between, you know, the physical and the mystical, which is incredibly important uh, for us to be aware of, especially during this revival. So thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate it. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you.